One thing is finding a solution, and then the other thing is basically how do you actually engage people in that solution? How do you get them excited about it? How do you make it desirable for people beyond just the pragmatics? Welcome, everyone, to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. My name is Padabud, and I am delighted to be back here for 100 Climate Conversations in this incredible building, the Powerhouse Museum. Today's number 48 of 100 Conversations. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. Before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We respect their elders, past, present and future and recognise their continuous connection to country. We are recording live and I am very excited to introduce you to today's guest. Ross Harding is a creative consultant and principal at Finding Infinity with a background in engineering and finance. Founded in 2011, his firm harnesses creativity to hasten the world's transition to more sustainable practices. Harding advises on a broad range of projects from residential to citywide master plans. In 2021, Harding published A New Normal, Transforming Greater Melbourne from a Consumer to a Producer by 2030. Welcome, Ross. You said something once, which was really stuck, and I kind of want to start there. You said in a room full of creatives, you're seen as an engineer, and in a room full of engineers as a creative. First, let's unpack that. What, what do you mean? Yeah, I guess growing up for me, I was probably like my two favourite subjects at school were probably like art and maths, actually. And um, I can quite clearly remember a time just picking to go with maths as a career choice. And so got into engineering, but was always quite creative. But it's maybe, it was my experience, maybe it's quite common, but I feel that professionally you're quite often put into a box of you are this kind of personality type. And so I always used to try and use creativity through engineering, but I never really felt like I was given license to do that. So over the years, I guess I just kind of experimented in that space, you know, kind of creatively just doing a range of different things from, you know, throwing parties to making films to kind of doing all kinds of different unusual projects and sort of over time, I guess, built a little bit of confidence around it to be able to kind of do both sort of engineering and creative stuff at the same time. It'd be great to understand how that pull between the two worlds actually drives your work Mm -hmm. as a point of difference, which is a benefit rather than something that works against you. As you say, now you finally land in a place where those sort of two parts of your brain actually help the work that you're doing. Totally. Going back one step quickly, like how just how I got there in a sense was like doing numbers and proving numbers and writing reports on, you know, very much on this environmental topic, sort of energy, water, waste stuff, calculations, reporting, that information. You would think that that would be really effective on all kinds of projects, but you could just kind of write a technical financial report, solve the problem, hand it to someone, and they would pick up that information and be like, oh, we should do this. We've been advised by an expert to do this. But I find that really, you know, reports like that are often, you know, you do them for the sake of it, but they're quite often ignored. The creative side of things for me is interesting in terms of communication. One thing is finding a solution, 
And then the other thing is basically, how do you actually engage people in that solution? How do you get them excited about it? How do you make it desirable for people beyond just the pragmatics? That's a really interesting way to describe it. I think for people that perhaps haven't come into the engineering world or the world of architecture or even the world of sustainability broadly and how those sort of two things come together mm -hmm. to create more sustainable practices, um, you know, to affect change on, on climate, which is what, what we're here to talk about. In a nutshell, what is it that you actually do? How yeah. would you explain it to me if we sat down for a drink in a bar and you were getting to know me for the first time? Totally. In sort of sim the simplest of terms. So, so in effect, these days, there's always some sort of minimum environmental requirements on projects, whether it's a, a house or you know, a, an office building or a hotel or a master plan. It's usually a council requirement or, you know, some sort of government requirement, building code requirement. These minimum standards are around. Now, they're not very ambitious. They're not very exciting. That's typically called ESD consulting in sort of in the construction industry. What does the ESD stand for? Environmentally Sustainable Design. And it was an exciting scene once upon a time, but over time, it's Basically, these people are advising developers on how to do as little as possible. It's basically like, how can I help you build the worst possible thing to meet the requirements? So you kind of, if a lot of people working in that space are very frustrated because they're like, in effect, they're opposing what they're in it for. So we kind of come at it in a really ambitious, rebellious, kind of like unusual way. And we say to people, we'll, we'll work with you, but we will do it as maximum performance. We'll help you do as much as you possibly can, but we'll find a commercially viable way of achieving that. Um, so that's sort of the bridge between minimum and maximum. One thing is finding that solution. The other thing is actually trying to deliver it, basically. And that's where like, my team these days, uh, like basically, engineers, architects, and um, even like one of the teams, an artist. So we've got a really like unusual mix of people that are kind of bringing them like a different flavor of things to that process to kind of plug into projects on all kinds of different layers. Like we, we get involved in market research, we get involved in branding, we'll get involved in design, we get involved in the engineering, like the financials, it's quite all encompassing now. As you've been explaining, you've worked for you know, more than a decade now in, in the sustainability space, uh, designing, measuring sustainable outcomes for buildings. What are sort of some of the key takeaways, I suppose, from these experiences that have shaped your approach to sustainability? Well, I think probably the, the craziest thing that is front and centre for me every single day is that like, we are at this amazing point in time in history where you can either transform existing buildings or master plans or even cities or create new projects that uh, have no negative environmental impact or even have a positive environmental impact. And you can do that in a financially viable way. Like, so that to me is so interesting that there are no technical or financial barriers. So am I hearing there that, so just going off what you said earlier, that you yeah. know, big developers, big development projects can no longer say, oh, we can't make this building sustainable because it's too, it's too expensive. It's a myth, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you sometimes have to be a little bit creative financially as well. It's not always about just simply saying, you know, that thing's more expensive than that. In essence, I think that 
a lot of people like to say the technology is not there, or, you know, it's, it's, too, it's too expensive still. That's not the challenge to me and from my kind of experiences over time. It's always the humans, you know, <laughs> you know, like there's always a group of humans making decisions. There's risk associated with it. There's um, trying to like be nervous about whether or not the target market want it and all these sorts of things. Um, but actually, like what's also kind of exciting in that space as far as I'm concerned is I think a lot of people think you have to really come up with big, crazy ideas to do something exciting in this space. But we've found over, over the years, like the construction industry really doesn't like innovation. <laughs> it likes talking about innovation, but actually it's logical. Like the, the, if you empathize with developers, they are trying to make a safe investment on a project. So they don't want to take too many risks. The, the really exciting thing though, is that we've become really close with a lot of developers. And like, we actually, it's funny because environmentally, you were always like the bottom of the barrel. We were like the sub-consultant of the sub-consultant of, you know, the building services engineer of the architect who was then advising the developer. These days we work direct with developers and we do all these numbers up front with them. And most developers want to do great things. Your work is based on the concept of transforming cities, right? From consumers to producers. How do cities traditionally operate as consumers and what is that impact on the climate? Yeah, good question. Melbourne, for example, has power plants out of Latrobe Valley that power the whole thing basically on brown coal, which is some of the dirtiest power plants in the world. 90% of the homes in Melbourne have got gas connections, so they're all burning fossil fuels for domestic hot water and heating. They use coal for electricity. They basically, there's a whole bunch of dams across the city that, like, you know, outskirts of the city that feed water to the city. And then all of that, like, only probably 5% of that is actually sewer and about like 90% of the water that's consumed in the city is actually grey water but all of that water goes to, into sewer and all of it gets treated and then sent out to the sea. But in the meantime, the city's running out of water. And then at the same time, you've got like, you know, huge amounts of materials that are consumed from all over the world. And then they're basically just getting dumped in landfills. So it's a very linear process at the moment of just taking materials, consuming them to live, and then basically dumping them Cities are a huge part of the problem. So I think right now it's like 50% of the world live in, of humans live in, this, in cities. And I think by 2050, it's like about two thirds of the world will live in cities. Estimates of impact of sort of carbon emissions from cities is potentially up to 70% of global carbon emissions as a result of cities. So if you look at that as like, yes, that's potentially a big part of the problem, like maybe the majority of the problem, but to me that's exciting. Like as a as a real optimist, like that's that's the solution, you know. <laughs> so actually, when you look at it and you actually start to look at the problem, like actually the solution becomes a lot more tangible. So it's looking at our building practices, looking at infrastructure, all the things that your that your work focuses on. I mean, it's now probably 15 years of working on buildings. When you look at a city, it's actually, Melbourne is like about one million buildings. So actually, if you look at each individual building, as you start to look at it as a collective, a city becomes in some ways like one building, basically. And, but the transformation of that becomes far more interesting when you look at it at that scale, because 
normally if you're trying to transform a building or a city block, for example, you're limited by some of that infrastructure. It was always a dream of mine since I was probably about 20 to do a citywide strategy, but I never got the, like, I basically spent years trying to convince different people at councils to let me do it. I did a few free opportunities and never got anywhere. And then one day we just decided to do it without getting paid for it, basically. So Ross, in collaboration with 15 different architecture firms, Finding Infinity released a new normal in 2021. It's a proposal for Greater Melbourne to indeed transform it from a consumer to a producer. Can you tell me about a new normal and how it came about? At the time, it was two of us in our team. We're now an eight-person team, but at the time, it was two of us. For a two-person team to spend 50% of their working hours for two years on an unpaid citywide project was like, you know, a professional suicide. So it's called a new normal, and we... We realised at some point in time over the years, like looking at buildings, I think we did, it was in the order of 100 projects that we'd done these buildings and we'd looked at what does it cost to go 100% renewable on site? What does it cost to go water neutral on site? What does it cost to go zero waste on site? What are the payback periods? Like what are the operational costs? Things like this. And we found across the board, we worked out that on average it was like 8% extra and they would pay back within eight years. So like the numbers looked good, but we looked across the board at those 100 projects and probably 95% of them like just got us to write these reports that they put in their top drawer and they never did anything with it. It was partially through optimism, partially through frustration. We just were like, screw it, let's, let's just have a crack at the city. And so we just did the, we spent two years just basically doing calculations, like trying to work out what would it cost to do that same thing for a whole city, all 31 councils combined, like 5 million people? Instead of us coming up with a big idea, right, or like trying to invent new technology or something like this, going back to knowing the construction industry, we were like, let's not try and be innovative about this because that's not going to fly. The construction industry, it, it like, loves talking about innovation, but it's really risk averse. And so what we learned along the way was, if you just add up the sum total of really boring initiatives that are all cost effective and tried and proven individually, like none of them are actually all that exciting. People always go like, tell me something exciting. It's like, no, no, it's all the boring things that are really exciting. So if you sum total all the boring things are, you can, that are super cost effective, you can create these like plus energy, water neutral, zero waste projects. So we took that same thinking towards the city. And we just said, let's not make this our idea or our opinion. Let's just do an investigation. And we like, looked into examples around the world of cities that were doing all kinds of different initiatives. We almost tried to like, picture that we were a computer, in a sense. And we asked the computer the question, if you copied and pasted all of the most cost-effective, financially viable solutions from around the world, and you basically applied them to Melbourne, how much would it cost? What would the outcome be? How much space would we need? And how many years would it take to pay for itself? Okay, much? I'm really gonna push your creative brain now and ask you to, I suppose, paint a picture of what a self-sufficient city actually mm. looks like. One simple way of describing it is like, the only thing that enters and leaves is people. So it's like, it's a city that kind of has no inputs and no outputs. 
in a sense, like a circular city, a city where you have like an, an, an endless supply of energy, um, an infinite supply of energy that requires no mining or no resources to do that. Um, a city that has an unlimited supply of water that you don't need to tap into water reserves or groundwater or, and you also don't need to dump uh, waste in, into the ocean. And like a city that is completely circular in terms of materials. So basically fully closed loop. So everything that is consumed is going back around in a circle and reused infinitely. But is that viable? Because I think some people listening might think great ideas, really innovative, but isn't that slightly idealistic given the state of the climate right now? Totally, totally. And that was our kind of concern as well. It's like, what would, what would that cost? Is, that, is it really expensive? Well, and how do you shut those naysayers down in order to affect the change that you want to see? We, we worked it out. <laughs> we basically worked out how many solar panels you need. We worked out um, how many gas boilers we'd need to replace. We calculated how, how many cars we'd need to reduce to and how many cars we'd need to convert to electric. We worked out um, how many buildings we'd need to retrofit. We worked out like how many water treatment plants we'd need to install across the city. We worked out how much food that waste there was and how many sort of organic waste to energy anaerobic digesters we'd need to install across the city. Basically, that's kind of what we do on buildings and master plans. So we sort of just took that same approach to the city and we broke it down into 10 initiatives. The outcome was that it would cost $100 billion. This is what we worked out, which sounds, sounds like a big number, okay? And like, this was all pre-COVID. Um, and so cruising around town saying we need $100 billion to transform the city, we seemed pretty insane. But it, it's a really, it's a logical investment. It basically would pay for itself in seven years or less. Um, and that would create 100% renewable, water neutral, zero waste city. Now, just as we were like about to launch, COVID hit, and we were like kind of all disappointed. Um, so we sort of like didn't know what to do. And then we actually went back and decided to start to calculate the number of jobs that would come from it. So we worked out it'd be 80,000 jobs in construction and 40,000 ongoing jobs from there. So that was part of the interesting traction in the project was like, it was actually kind of like an economic multiplier that everyone was looking for. The technical side, it's achievable. We've got the technology. It's not overly complex. What is complex is the humans and the system. Like there's, there's a lot of complexity in there. And that's where we kind of talk about it as like, if you're asking the question of like, why you need to do something like this, I think you're having the wrong conversation and you shouldn't have that conversation. If you're asking the question, what needs to happen? I think you could probably jam 10 experts in a room and they'd pretty much agree within a couple of hours. But I think if you're talking about how it needs to happen, I think that's where things get really interesting. You've mentioned what a city would, could or would look like, but what about the impact of this new normal that you're describing? We tried to break it down into 10 things to keep it simple, because realistically there's probably, you know, like 10,000 things that need to happen really when you think about it. We basically hit up 10 items that we felt were kind of missing in policy that we could kind of find and create projects around. Um, and we identified those things as sort of things that are not already happening, basically. So 
First one was to electrify the entire transport sector, and we were mainly focusing on individual transport because that's not happening fast enough at the moment. Energy storage um, across the city, which is actually kind of linked with cars. Electrifying all buildings, basically, so um, getting all buildings off gas. Energy efficiency and water efficiency retrofits, but like pretty hardcore retrofits, like turning all existing buildings into high-performance buildings. Solar on buildings, solar and wind grid scale, uh, water treatment, so water treatment and reuse, uh, organic waste to energy, um, ending landfill. Um, and those first nine actually have nothing to do with new buildings. So they're all just uh, transforming existing city and infrastructure. Um, and then the last one is basically a, a net zero code for all new buildings. So anything new that gets built, can't add to the problem. If anything, it, it kind of needs to be there to help. Where things got really interesting in the project from there is like just not, not writing another report, okay? Because writing a report is sort of like, yeah, I'm used to writing reports that people ignore. But we, we basically grabbed that information and then we invited 15 of Melbourne's best architects over to my home for dinner. And we asked them all to cook up a project. I just sort of got up and poured my heart out to my friends. These are all like our friends. And just said, hey guys, will you, you know, help us cook up a render for each of the projects um, to help us visualize what the future of the city could look like. But actually like the, the pitch to them was not to do some like boring solar power plant or a water treatment plant or, you know, take a gas boiler out of a building. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's, that's not really engaging for people. Like, that's not really exciting. So we actually pitched the idea of poetry. We said, like, hey, you know, it was a bit abstract, but, like, everyone was on board. And th this, to me, is what's so exciting about architecture is that actually I was pretty jaded by architecture before this point in time. I was like, architects don't listen. Architects, like, they're not really trying. They just want to do, like, you know, beautiful buildings to blow all the budget on facades and finishes to take nice pictures to win awards, basically. To sit on the coffee table. <laughs> to, exactly. And I was like, you know, architecture is an amazing vehicle for transformation. And so we said to everyone, hey, we want you to find a poetic connection between technology and the people. So using some form of culture. And look, like I use that broadly, like, you know, one definition of culture is like the sum total of ways of living passed down from one generation to the next. So I think that to me is where the how becomes interesting. And I think this is where like, what conversation we're having with who. And to me, it was, it was just an idea that we had about this, okay? But I think this has been pivotal in trying to help to like create these projects because I'll briefly summarize, but in effect, we launched with renders. We then basically made videos, social media campaign. We ended up doing an exhibition and we created these physical installations of these example projects, but they were kind of diversions. They're not, they're not didactic communication. They're really like kind of abstract uh, diversions. And what that created was like, we actually launched at the, with, um, in Melbourne for Design Week. We got a lot of press because we had like a beautiful selection of photos and it was these amazing architects that all put their name on it. Like some of the world's best architects were involved in this thing. 
And it, it, we got international press. We launched the whole thing. So we launched a $100 billion strategy, and the, the pitch was we're translating the $100 billion strategy into 15 tangible projects that we're going to find sites and funds for across the city. And we got, like, we've, we, we ended up getting eight of them funded already. So we've got, like, 200 mil worth of projects that we're... That's extraordinary. Well done. ...actively cruising around the city. Um, that we've got sites and funds for all of these projects. Two of them are already in construction. Um, the rest of them have been, like, submitted for planning, so they're close. That is our way of taking this report and trying to realise it. Let's talk about some of the projects that you're really excited about. I'd say we're probably working on about 50 projects at the moment, and they're all pretty exciting. But the eight of them are specifically linked with New Normal. And I guess the main reason I say that is like they're tangible projects that are linked with gaps in policy. So we're, we're basically working with developers. Well, some of them are council projects and some of them are developers. They've basically come to us and said, hey, we've got a project. Like, how would you like to work with us on this? We've found a key initiative and we're basically creating these sort of uh, pilot projects. They're, they're demonstration projects, they're example projects. They're profitable in their own right, so that's like works well for the developer anyway. The general public are already quite excited about some of them before they've even been formally launched. To me, what's the next step in the process is actually, yeah, cool, so you built like like, for example, one of them is like a plus energy retrofit of 15 studio apartments. And it's like, yeah, okay, it's just one building though. Like, how is that going to transform the city? Well, through that one project, we then like have now, actually, it's a funny story, but like we've become friends with the unions. Like the CFMEU have come to us and said, hey, we've seen all the jobs that are coming from the $100 billion strategy. $55 billion of that was in solar on buildings, uh, removing gas from existing buildings and retrofit of existing buildings. So basically transforming existing buildings. And like the, I think it's about 50,000 jobs would come from that process. So they've seen those numbers and they've said, hey, um, like how can we help work with you to create example projects to then lobby government? What we're learning through lots of trial and error and lots of failure of trying to but put effort into all kinds of places, is it going to be effective or not? If you can create a, a physical example that could be like of what policy could be, this is basically what state government told me to do. Like we presented new normal to state government early on and they're like, it's a bit too radical for us. You should go build that stuff with the private sector and then come back to us when you've got some example projects. So like I say, we've got eight of them going now. The idea is like once they're ready to roll and we've done all the hard work to prove it up, then it makes it much easier for a politician. It de-risks it from them from a public perception perspective because we already know the public like these things and the developers already know they do, otherwise they wouldn't do it. It de-risks it from opposition from developers and the private sector saying, hey, it's going to cost too much money and it's a problem because they can already see it's profitable for them. And so like, we're, that to me is the key in it, is empathise with a politician who wants to keep their job, basically. One of the projects that we're working on is a plus energy retrofit of the plumbers and gas fitters union building. To be able to kind of have a politician come in and say, hey, we're going to electrify the whole city is something that is sort of what we're trying to gear up towards. Thank you so much, Ross, for joining us on 100 Climate Conversations.
To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording, go to 100, that's number 100, climateconversations.com. Thank you so much.